And so we were hearing first-hand accounts from people um, who uh, were telling us very graphic stories of, of, of the horrific experience that they just had. Mm. And, and, and that's quite something to bear as well on our shoulders. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. Today, we're hearing from two people who are intimately involved in the Grenfell fire. Not residents, but the people who helped those residents from the fire brigade and from the health service. It's been just over two years since that fire started in a flat on the fourth floor of a block in wealthy West London. The fire took everyone by surprise. In just 20 minutes, it had raced up the side of the cladding of the building in a way which no one expected. That fire went on to claim the lives of 72 residents. It still um, triggers memories of that night. Um, The landscape of London consists of a lot of high-rise tower blocks and it's just kind of the background as it were and um, it's part of your daily 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 life um, and to see a building like that in front of our eyes really and we could actually even see it from the balcony above our emergency department um, it was it was quite quite shocking and that that seeing that film still brings back brings back the memories of that night memories and emotions that's Anumitra a consultant emergency physician at St Mary's Hospital as part of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. St Mary's is the closest hospital to the tower and Anu was the most senior medic in the emergency department during that shift on the night that it happened. And so so we were alerted to it at St Mary's not by any official kind of major incident um, cascade but actually our staff on the 11th floor, our nurse uh, ward staff on the 11th floor looked out of the window and they could see this high-rise building catching fire and being engulfed in flames before their very eyes. And they actually phoned down to say, guys, we just need to let you know that there's something going on and you're going to start receiving a lot of patients soon. Mm. St Mary's staff would have been bleeped and asked to come into the hospital and prepare themselves to receive mass casualties. Our paediatric ED was for the, the less injured patients. We also had a team on the ambulance ramp. We had a team in the recess room in majors. We had a team in the fracture clinic for the, for the least injured patients. We had such a massive response from so many staff. It was well over 100, I think. We, we, we actually had to turn people away because of so many people keen to come in. But that meant I had a, I had a reserve of staff that I could then send in to, to relieve others. So I did circulate a lot to try and try and relieve people. And I think hopefully that may have given people a bit of a break because, yes, I can understand actually being face-to-face and dealing with patient after patient must have been really, really tough. And I'm still a relatively junior consultant, so I was, I, you know, I was really scared of um, of having to take up, take charge. And um, but actually, what I realised very quickly is that everyone who came in knew exactly what they needed to do because they'd been through it before. 
they were already experts in their fields. Um, they didn't need, they just, it was just, they went into auto, automatically assumed their roles and just got on with it. And so I realized that actually I wasn't going to have to actually say to people, you do this, you do that. Um, I decided early on that what I needed to do is I needed to just look after the team. So I had to look after the welfare of the team. So one of the very first things I did uh, when the, the call came out, before anyone had arrived, I got my mobile phone charger and I went around the department uh, and the offices gathering up as many plastic cups as I could find. Mm-hmm. And I just distributed them around and we got some jugs of water distributed around the a department. And I thought, I don't need to direct people because they're, they're just, they're directing themselves and they're doing an expert job. I just need to look after them. And that that's what, you know, when I was making sure that people were taking breaks and people being relieved, I, that's that's what I was thinking rather than um, um, rather than actually necessarily um, telling people what to do, as it were. So St Mary's was prepared and the residents from the tower started to arrive. There were a lot of children involved and I've been involved in other major incidents but not so many um, with such a high proportion of children and I think I can relate people involved in the Manchester Arena bombing uh, probably went through the same thing. The, the people that were brought in were in extreme psychological distress. Um, some couldn't speak English, um, some wouldn't speak because of the psychological shock. Um, and um, there were families coming in, parents and children or parts of families coming in. and, and, and the, the emotional burden of having to deal with that in in, in one sort of in one go um, was unique. Um, the other thing I alluded to in the talk was that, um, um, in contrast to the people who were unable to speak, there were also people who felt that they just needed to tell someone what they'd seen. They needed to bear witness um, because in the in the in the chaos of the extraction and the rescue, they hadn't had a chance to actually talk to another human being. Um, and those first human beings that actually spoke to them in, in many cases were the people in the ED, the nurses and the doctors. Um, and so we were hearing first-hand accounts from people um, who uh, were telling us very graphic stories of, of, of the horrific experience that they just had. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's quite something to bear as well on our shoulders. When there is a fire in a tower block, like Grenfell Tower, the rules say that people in their homes should stay put. Modern building design with modern safety systems should limit the spread of the fire, meaning that firefighters can tackle the blaze in a single place. Staying put means that residents are not exposed to smoke and crowding, which are significant dangers when trying to evacuate a building. The way the fire spread in Grenfell meant that that was no longer an option. In the building, firefighters were trying to get people out. But in the confusion, residents had left their flats and gone to neighbours or different floors. So when two firefighters were sent to rescue what they thought would be two residents in their home, they may have actually been met with a flat that contained way more than they could help all at once. The choices then placed on firefighters' heads, was to have a long-term effect on them. And the psychological impact is still ongoing. 
This is Andy Rowe, Assistant Commissioner at London Fire Brigade. Andy was Incident Commander at Grenfell, so he coordinated the response across the whole fire service. We already had a very good understanding that being a firefighter can take a great personal toll on you. Um, So we've had in place a a very um, good support structure for many, many years, you know, a full-time staffed psychological health team with therapists and counsellors based in central London, um, support groups for staff. Um, I think what Grenfell taught us, though, was that when you have a series of major incidents and your staff are exposed at a scale to something of that horror, there is something about the scale of it and having a response that is scalable to be able to deal with that. Mm. Um, And I think that's where we focused our attention post-Grenfell, to try and build on the very good intent we already had, but to make more resilience and on a greater scale delivered by peers, um, kind of a post-trauma response. So if you look at the military, the military went through this evolution uh, to a, to a, uh, in an earlier time than us, predominantly because of Iraq and Afghanistan, actually. Mm. They put in place something called TRIM, which is a peer trauma support network with well-trained non-professionals, but well-trained peers supporting crews in the immediacy of, a, of, a, of an incident and individuals. We haven't quite got to that place yet, but that is where we're going to go because we've always had very good informal support networks. We've always emphasised the need for hot debriefs, sit around and have a cup of tea with each other post-incident. But actually, we recognise that we need to better formalise that now to provide better training, not for our psychological health professionals who are absolutely gold standard, you know, world-class. They talk about their experiences because they're recognised as such. But amongst our peers and better embedding a culture of openness and willingness to demonstrate fragility. We do have a counselling team that works for the trust or or is part of the trust. Um, But if I'm being honest, they're a small team and we're an organisation of 12,000 staff um, and several hundred of those were involved in different ways with Grenfell. Um, So I think they were overwhelmed. Um, they were very supportive to the ED and they did reach out and we tried to, we, we put together a couple of uh, meetings, but um, I don't think, there wasn't really anything robust in place, but I expect that will that will be different next time around. Um, we tried a couple of things in the emergency department. We, tr- we tried having kind of drop-in sessions, um, say first thing in the morning at the end of a night shift with certain senior staff would just be in the coffee room if anyone wanted to pop in and sort of unload. We also, the second thing we also tried was we had a session joint group sort of debrief, emotional debrief, I called it, um, session with one of the counsellors. They weren't very successful. And I think for a couple of reasons, partly because um, people's shift patterns um, but partly because I think there was probably a bit of a reticence amongst our staff to um, hold their hands up and admit, say, I, I'm not okay and I need some help. Um, which is why I think individuals have reached out to the councillors. Um, but I really, I strongly felt having experienced um, Schwartz rounds, which the Trust has, had already been running, 
that we needed to have some kind of group activity because I think it was really important for people to be able to connect with each other and 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 and, and realize that they're not alone and other people having very similar experiences and emotions. I think Danny Cotton, um, our commissioner, is a very interesting figure. She's the first woman leader of a major metropolitan fire service. You know, she's an extraordinarily strong character with a very rich operational history um, and, and extremely resilient. But to see her stand up on national television and admit that Grenfell had given her great psychological distress, mm. that she'd had to reach out and receive help, you cannot imagine the power that holds within our organisation. She's extremely well respected and that has helped perhaps begin to drive a culture of greater openness because people look at her and think, wow, if, you, if you're our leader and you can say that, actually expose yourself so publicly but still have the confidence to run the organisation, to demonstrate your resilience in doing so while simultaneously recognising your own fragility, then maybe I can as well. I clearly know I'm not invulnerable, but I think I have to be mindful of the fact that our junior colleagues and our nurses, even though I do absolutely nothing to cultivate that image, it just comes with the title consultant, but our junior colleagues think we're invincible and we're infallible and we never get anything wrong and everything bounces off us, you know. Um, and that's that they couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, we're consultants for a reason, but 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 we're fallible just as just as our junior colleagues are. And I think it was really important for me to be able to share that and certainly get, having given giving this talk, it was important for me to say that I'm not invulnerable and I was affected by Grenfell, um, but not just by Grenfell, but I was, I'm affected by the day-to-day work that I do because that carries a, a huge um, emotional burden. Mm. And, you know, I, I hold my hands up. I, I, wouldn't even, I wasn't even admitting that to myself for, for several weeks post-Grenfell, but I have now. Um, and I think it's really important for our junior colleagues to realise that they're not alone. I mean, I think it's very easy to fixate on Grenfell, but actually I think perhaps with Grenfell as a catalyst, it, it reminded us that actually over the course of very long careers, so, you know, my people generally work for 30, between 30 and 40 years, often, at, you, know, some, you know, at the same station or in the same area, and they would have been exposed to repeated trauma over the decades because it's not just the big incidents. You know, if I was to look back across my career, some of the things that in the dark of night I think about actually aren't Grenfell. They're the two teenage girls that died in a road traffic accident. They're the young boy that fell down a ventilation shaft and died. They're, you know, they're other things. They're smaller incidents that will probably never even figure in anything bigger than a local news article. Just as impactful. And that's happening to our people on a daily basis. So it's not just about Grenfell. I think what we're beginning to understand is that over the course of long careers, People are exposed to an aggregate level of trauma that even with very resilient people, if they're not aware of it, aren't minded to manage it and reflect on it, you know, consciously, may sometime later come to cause them great great damage. And I think we are seeing that perhaps in increasing numbers. I don't think it's not that it hasn't always been there. What I'm hoping is it's because we have started to inculcate a culture of greater openness that allows people to explore it and seek the help they need. 
But I think it's something we, we really are beginning to understand that joining an emergency service and working, for, you know, I'm sure it's the same for clinicians and police officers. I know it is for the military. You know, actually, as fantastic as that career is and the value you bring and the value you get from delivering it, it does come perhaps at a cost for some people. And, and I kind of that was one of the, that was a kind of subtext of the first ED Schwartz round that we did. We, I intentionally chose senior kind of band seven nurses and consultants to be on the panel to talk about an error that they were involved in, a patient that they sent home. Because that patient I sent home is a theme that, that literally keeps junior doctors awake at night. Um, and, um, and and I thought it was re- I felt it was really important for, for them to know that they're not alone. Then and, and even senior colleagues are involved in error and senior colleagues are affected um, by adverse incidents that they're, um, and um, then we you know we're not infallible. Mm-hmm. So Schwartz rounds um, have been run at Imperial since 2015, and they they come from a um, the Schwartz Foundation in America, which was set up by a healthcare lawyer who was dying of cancer. Um, and the Schwartz round is one of their shining achievements and what that is essentially it's kind of like a non-clinical grand round so with a grand round you have a particular patient case and you talk about the medical merits or otherwise um, a Schwartz round explicitly steers clear of the technical and the, and the clinical and it focuses on um, rather than did I follow the guidelines with this patient or could I have given the antibiotics a bit quicker it's how did I feel when I was looking after this patient and how did I feel afterwards and how will that affect my care for patients in the future? Um, and the evidence shows with Schwartz rounds um, is that people who attend come away um, with a significant impact. Um, they feel far more connected with their colleagues. They feel that they will be able to function better in their teams and their departments. Some people, of, people often say also that they feel that they've come away as better and more compassionate clinicians and carers for their patients as well. So I I really thought that that was a great vehicle, potentially a great vehicle um, for the ED. Um, And so I attended a hospital Schwartz round, which was set up specifically post-Grenfell. But then I spoke to our Schwartz round organisers to say, well, actually what I'd like is something more intimate on a smaller scale just for the ED um, because there are there are there are ED specific themes that could be discussed and also I think in a smaller group where everyone knows each other there'll be a bit more confidence a bit more confidence to open up and share people's stories. I think what people are doing is grappling with the need to continue uh, you know a, a very important service delivery in the face of sometimes very difficult operating conditions and maintain the welfare of your staff. There's an immediate tension there. So actually, I don't think it's that people are complacent. I think it's just difficult. I think it's a hard thing to build systems in place that genuinely give your people that resilience. So actually, my experience, having talked about this quite a lot, post-Grenfell, post-tram crash, post the terror attacks in the context of the fire service, is that almost all the services I come into contact with are really beginning to understand the importance of building those networks, that support. 
perhaps mirrored by greater awareness of mental health in society, actually. So maybe society is driving this as well. You know, a greater openness in society to talk about people's individual issues. But no, I don't think people have got complacent. I think it's just a recognition that it's difficult and not all of us have got to the place, you know, we would necessarily want to be in. You've been listening to Andy Rowe, Assistant Commissioner at London Fire Brigade, and Annie Neutral, a consultant emergency physician at St Mary's Hospital, part of NHS College Healthcare NHS Trust. They were talking about support for staff who've witnessed tragic events, both large and small. These interviews were recorded at Risky Business, the annual conference talking about risk in healthcare. For more from the conference, including past talks, go to their website, riskybusiness.events. I'll link to it from the podcast text. That's it for this podcast, but as always, you can find our full back catalogue on bmj.com slash podcasts. That's years of content, all available for free. You can also find out how to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better. So, until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.